Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic, and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hey Jim, great to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand. As always, uh, I really must stop saying this at the top of the podcast, there is too much to talk about, but there is. And we're not going to get through um, all of the things that we could talk about this week. But my priorities, which I know overlap with yours, but you've got your own, would start with here in the UK. I think it's been a big week for UK politics in the context of Boris Johnson's testimony in front of the something called the Privileges Committee, going through what I think the best description of it is it's a pound shop Watergate. It's notable that the Daily Telegraph, Johnson's biggest supporting newspaper for years, uh, said this week, the cults of Boris and Brexit are simultaneously imploding. And that's linked to the Northern Ireland Protocol vote in the House of Commons at the same time that Johnson was testifying. So I think that's worthy of a brief discussion. Lots of economic news, interest rate rises everywhere this week. Following on from the ECB last week, we've had the Fed, the Bank of England, Switzerland, there's all sorts of different countries putting up interest rates this week, and we could talk about that all day, but it certainly merits a few minutes of our time. The ongoing saga that is Credit Suisse and UBS and the rolling banking crisis, is it over? I think we both need to supply an answer to that question. There's lots going on in France. They're rioting again. The French are revolting over pension reform. I want to talk a little bit about that. So, Jim, what would you like to add to that? And or where would you like to start? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of things, Chris, I would like to add to that. One is there's not a lot in terms of economic data out of Ireland this week. Uh, but one thing I would just like to focus in on a little bit is a couple of job loss announcements that were made during the week. I mean, we've spoken many times about the incredible buoyancy of the Irish labour market, record levels of employment at the end of last year, a 4.3% unemployment rate, which is virtually full employment. You know, there are some dark clouds starting to gather. Uh, the Central Bank recently published a report suggesting that to date, 
2,300 jobs have been lost in the technology sector. Um, I suspect, and only time will answer this question, but anecdotally, I would strongly suspect that many of those being laid off are being reemployed in other sectors of the economy that found it really difficult to compete with the big tech companies over the last couple of years. We saw Accenture in the last 24 hours announce significant global job layoffs, 400 jobs going here in Ireland. And I think that is a real indication of uh, you know, global economic pressure starting to impact on um, business consultancy, basically. Um, even though I hear many of the jobs are in sort of marketing and HR, they're, they're not sort of at the front line of consultancy. And then down home for me in Waterford, a company called Cartamundi, which is headquartered in Belgium. It makes board games such as Monopoly and Twister in Waterford. The company, at least the that the, the game board making company has been in operation for Waterford in Waterford since 1977. Initially, it was Milton Bradley. Then it became Hasbro, and then Cartamundi bought the business from Hasbro. But anyway, Cartamundi announced this week uh, it's shutting down this summer. The loss of 234 jobs. And for a small regional city like Waterford, that is a significant job layoff. And I guess it gets me thinking about here we have 234 workers who have probably spent the best part of their careers in um, this game manufacturing company. Um, I have no idea actually about the age profile, but I suspect it's an, an old enough age profile. Um, given how long the company has been around, you know, what does the government or what do policymakers do when you see this sort of a job layoff? I mean, do those workers become um, sort of permanently unemployed or is it possible to step in and retrain and reskill these workers, get them working in other parts of the economy where there's a lot of demand for labor at the moment? But I suppose the point I'm really trying to make is that you know, these global economic clouds that have been so prominent over the last 12, 18 months, certainly starting to have some impact on the Irish labour market. So, you know, you'd have to think in the next 12 months, the Irish labour market performance is going to get softer. Enough on that. If I could move on to the big story of the week, as far as I was concerned, was what was happening on the interest rate front. We spoke this day last week about the decision of the European Central Bank to increase rates by a half of 1%. And we were speculating as to how the Federal Reserve might react to that in the event the Fed did deliver an interest rate increase. But prior to the outbreak of the latest banking crisis, the, it was sort of written in stone that it was going to be a half percent rate rise. But in the event, a quarter percent was delivered. So the Federal Reserve certainly... Um, taking some cognizance of what's happening in global financial markets, particularly in banking markets at the moment. Uh, the Bank of England likewise delivered a quarter percent increase. But interestingly, the Swiss National Bank increased rates by a half of 1%, uh, despite the fact that as far as Europe is concerned, Switzerland is at the center of the global banking problems. I was going to say crisis, not sure it's a crisis yet, but the global banking problem. Switzerland is at the center, uh, but the Swiss National Bank clearly um, is quite happy to increase interest rates aggressively despite those uncertainties. So interesting times from central bankers.
Absolutely. And I think that you're right to call it a banking crisis and you're actually wrong to row back and just describe it as a banking problem. And I know why you did that, Jim, because that's the consensus view out there. That's what I think most sensible commentators are saying. One or two of us, me included, are thinking it's more serious than that. And there are a number of reasons for thinking it's a real problem. I won't call it a crisis just yet. Martin Sanbu wrote a fantastic piece in the FT this week about how regulators are making a complete mess of it on both sides of the Atlantic. It's a long piece, involves lots of technicalities that normally most reasonable adults should never go anywhere near banking regulation and its intricacies. But those people interested in this sort of thing, it's well worth a read. But I'll summarise it in perhaps slightly oversimplistic terms, which is that Sanbu, and I think quite correctly, argues that following the last great financial crisis of only just over a decade ago, we put in lots of procedures, rules, regulatory frameworks to make sure that it never happened again. One of the things that's happened over the last few weeks is that it has happened again in a small way. And the first thing that the regulators have done on both sides of the Atlantic is that those frameworks that they put in place to make sure that it would never happen again have been thrown out the window. And they've done exactly what they said they weren't going to do. And there are various technical ways in which that has happened. But basically, regulators uh, both caused the problem and, I think, and so does Sandro, are risking making it a lot worse. Why do I think it's a big problem? Well, there are various dimensions to this. One is the regulatory response that I just mentioned. They're making a balls of it. The other is you have to think uh, in, in, in relatively simple terms what banking actually is. Banks make money by lending money. They lend uh, usually other people's money. There are three categories of cash pots, if you like, cash piles that they lend out. There's their own money, which is the smallest pot, which is shareholders' funds, which is the amount of money that shareholders have got invested in bank equity. There's depositors' money. So that's the likes of you and me with our current accounts. That's by far and away the biggest pot available to a bank to lend. And there's bondholder money. One of the ways in which they raise quasi-deposits, if you like, is by issuing bonds. So there's three pots of money there. And the thing that SVB did was that with those pots of money, it uh, bought US government bonds. And lots of banks in the States have done this. And somebody's worked out that if you add up all of the losses on those bonds that those banks are carrying on their books, that pot, that smallest pot of equity of shareholders' funds is more or less wiped out for the, for the US banking system. Now, that all sounds quite technical, but it is incredibly important and very, very worrying. It doesn't actually matter in the short term, provided confidence in the banking system is, is maintained. And at the moment, it clearly is. But I think that there are going to be issues and I think that there are two sources of issue out there waiting for us. The first one is the one that we know nothing about. We knew, you know, two weeks ago, we knew nothing about SVB or we, and we certainly didn't think the Credit Suisse would cease to exist in a matter of days. So there is some, potentially something out there waiting for us. There always is. But at this time, we would have thought that there is a bigger chance of an unknown unknown out there. The, the other thing that I'm pretty sure is going to happen is that as a result of two things working together, reinforcing each other, we've got a credit crunch coming. We've got, a, or at least a credit squeeze on the economy. And the economy is now going to slow down. You spoke about job losses. 
um, and the way in which job losses in Waterford are not really connected to the global financial problems that we're having. They are actually, and they certainly are going to be. Because if you are a bank listening to the kind of stuff that I've just come out with, their own internal analysts will be telling their risk committees, this is what is going on. You've only got to open the papers to know what's going on. Any risk committee in any bank will immediately, if they're any good, that is, will say, hang on a minute, there are problems out there, some of which we can see, some of which we can't, but we know they're coming at us. So we are going to pull back our business. We are going to reduce lending below what we thought we were going to do. We're going to tighten our lending standards. We'll only lend to really high quality people. This is a classic series of steps that banks make to tighten credit. Modern economies function on credit. They function on bank borrowing to a large extent, not entirely, but it's a very important channel for economic activity, for economic growth. And if banks are tightening their lending, then economies will grow by less. If you also have interest rate rises, those are designed to have exactly the same effects as a credit tightening by banks. In fact, interest rate rises are meant to force banks to tighten credit standards. So that reduces economic activity as well. So the two things are going to act together. So I would actually be more confident than I was, Jim, that we are going to get economic problems this year, that the, econ the next phase of economic forecast revisions over the next few months will be, I would guess, right now, downwards. So I think that we do have problems coming from all of this. Um, Chris? I, go on. Yeah. Now, I, I, you're, you're putting words in my mouth that I haven't really said. Um, I wasn't, number one, I wasn't suggesting the Carter Monday situation in Warford had nothing to do with global events. I hope, of course, it has. But secondly, in relation to the banking problems that we're having at the moment, um, I wouldn't underestimate for one moment uh, the severity of those problems because we've seen three US banks um, effectively being shut down by the FDIC. We've seen the problems with CS, CSFB in Switzerland. Um, and, and each time we see these banks getting into difficulty, the rationale being provided by certain market analysts is that uh, the problem in this bank is unique to this bank. And of course, with every bank that gets into difficulty, the same thing is spouted out. The problems here are unique to this bank. I mean, SVB, for example, have put way too much of its... Um, client deposits into um, a single asset class, long-term treasuries um, in the, 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 the Silvergate, the uh, crypto bank, obviously um, a different story. And then Signature Bank, a slightly different story as well. So, but obviously the, the, the number of banks in these sorts of difficulties continues to grow. So, you know, it is a crisis actually. And when you see the Federal Reserve reacting the way it has reacted in terms of providing support. We've seen Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the US Treasury, um, over the last couple of days um, doing a little bit of a backflip in terms of her attitude towards banking. On Wednesday, she was testifying that the Treasury would not increase the um, deposit guarantee for deposits over 250,000 across the board. She rolled back on that yesterday by suggesting that, well, actually, we, we will do whatever we have to do to preserve depositors' money in the banking system. So clearly, um, she recognizes now that this is a significant global banking crisis. And um, uh, you know, I, I'd have to say I would agree with her on that if that's what she's really saying. Um, and the economic implication of this, as you point out, 
you know, are are pretty significant. And that's why against that sort of backdrop, you know, continuing to increase interest rates uh, to me is a little bit like whistling past the graveyard in the dark, uh, to use that old analogy. Um, I, I'd like to pick you up um, to get some specifics on you were talking about the whole um, use the term they made of balls of the whole regulatory function. Are you talking about Europe and the states or the states specifically? I know in the case of the states, uh, the changes to regulation that Trump pushed through in 2018 on the back of significant lobbying from the banking industry, including uh, very vocally from the CEO of SVB Bank, uh, which basically meant that banks below a certain size, $250 billion, would not be subject to anything like the same sort of supervisory regulation as bigger banks. Um, and that has certainly come home to roost in the case of SVB. Uh, there's a lack of supervision there. But would you apply the same sort of analysis to what's happening in Europe? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Pro- problems in Credit Suisse that have really come to the fore over the last couple of weeks, but they've been around for the last couple of years. I mean, Credit Suisse has been involved in some incredible um, investment losses because of very poor managerial behavior and so on. But would you be as critical of the regulation in Europe as in the United States? And what specifically have the regulators done that's made a balls out of it? I guess it's tough to measure just how bad the regulator has been. There's no metric or scale or weighing scale that we can use. But as you rightly said, The big mistake that they've made in the US is that they've exempted small and medium-sized banks from a lot of regulatory supervision. And in particular, the the Trump era rowing back of Dodd-Frank regulations for small and medium-sized banks um, in response to lobbying, quite frankly. The, the, The same banks that were exempted were the ones that were doing the lobbying. Surprise, surprise. And so SVB wasn't even stress tested. Nobody, no regular weight regulator went in and looked at its books and said, you've got far too much interest rate risk in US treasuries. They could have done that. They should have done that. And it's a simple thing. It's not a complicated thing at all. It should have been done. And it's a just it's shocking that it wasn't done. So that was a huge regulatory failure. The regulatory failure in Switzerland was different in that how do you regulate bad behavior of, of the, you know, the investment bank in, in terms of its involvement in various financial blow-ups and scandals in recent years. But the main regulatory failure last week was that Switzerland, along with all of the other regulators around the world, promised us last time that there would be no taxpayer bailouts of banks next time, that they, that they would be, in the jargon, resolved. They made banks produce something called living wills, that if they got into trouble, this was how we would wind ourselves down 
without causing the taxpayer any difficulty. CS, Credit Suisse, was bailed out last week by the Swiss National Bank. The taxpayer is on the hook for whatever losses the guarantees supplied by the Swiss National Bank provided to both Credit Suisse and the new entity, uh, UBS. So it was disguised, it was hidden, but it was uh, a bailout. And the taxpayer is on the hook for potential liabilities because of guarantees that have been given to, to UBS should any more losses that are currently hidden emerge. So that's the sense in which they did something that they said that they weren't going to do. Uh, so I think that regulators on both sides of the Atlantic have been badly behaved in those two different ways. And what about the European Central Bank? Which well, they have nothing to do with... No, they have, that's East. nothing to do with Switzerland, absolutely. And uh, they, they were very quick to come out. In, this is another technicality. The, the Swiss burned the bondholders. Do you remember that phrase from our own dear I financial sure crisis? And the controversy in Ireland was whether or not bondholders should be given their money back by the taxpayer. And I, so I won't put words in your mouth on this one, but at the time, and certainly subsequently, I've, I'm on record of saying certain of the bank's bondholders should definitely not have gotten their money back paid for by the taxpayer. In the jargon, the bondholders should have been burned. The bondholders, some of them at least, $17 billion worth of them, were burned uh, by the Swiss government, by Credit Suisse last week. I'm, a new category of bond called um, AT1s. It was uh, a, an example of, you know, if you're going to invest in something, don't invest in something that you don't know anything about because investors are crying foul now because traditionally, when you wind up a bank, the first thing that gets wiped out is the bank's equity, the shareholders. That pot of money that I referred to earlier on disappears altogether. Shareholders didn't get very much, but they got something. Whereas these bondholders... Are getting nothing and they're saying that upends the normal rules of capitalism and the fact is that in the terms and conditions of the, the documentation when they bought these bonds it was written in black and white that the swiss authorities could do this to them in the event of a major blow-up it was a type of force majeure clause i i would put it although although different people would describe it differently so but a lot of people are offended and there are lots of people now going to sue the swiss the americans are on the warpath etc. There's going to be lots of fallout from this. One of the things that's happening is that uh, the Department of Justice in the United States is now investigating Credit Suisse and UBS for helping Russian oligarchs evade sanctions. So um, if that is proved, and as I say, it is only an investigation, and um, we always assume innocence until proven guilty, but if that were proved, that would be the Swiss banks yet again providing banking services to whoever they um, whoever asks them, no matter what moral, ethical, or indeed in this particular case, legal restraints on, on doing so. So I, I think it's a mess, Jim, from a whole host of perspectives. That's a long-winded answer to your question about the ECB. They haven't had to do a bank bailout yet. They were very quick to come out and say they wouldn't do what the Swiss did with respect to those bondholders, those AT1s. And I thought that was interesting. They still want to protect bondholders. Um, I applauded what the Swiss did, actually. And I think that the ECB should have kept its mouth shut, or the banking authorities in Europe should have kept its mouth shut on that. We will have to await judgment on the European regulatory response to a banking problem as and when, if and when, a European banking situation arises. Looking here at the health of the Irish banks, um, you know, as a cursory glance at the balance sheets of the banks, who would suggest that the capital situation is strong 
and so on. And do, do, you, do you think there's any possibility that you could get this sort of contagion spreading into the Irish banking market? Or has the fact that there's been such a reduction in the size of domestic banks' balance sheets over the last decade, really, does that ensure that the Irish banks are going to come through this unscathed? Nothing is certain. Well, Nothing is certain in life, Jim, as you know. Um, I think, but we could be, we're as certain as we can be that the Irish banks are safe. I'm not worried about them in any meaningful way. The only two channels that you could see problems for the Irish banks arising is one, a generalised loss of confidence in banking that stems externally. It's not going to come from Ireland. It's going to come from some global panic. And we're not anywhere near that yet. Uh, but that's because the global banking system relies at the end of the day, on confidence. And that means that we don't all turn up at the bank stores or these days click our computer mice to get our money out. Because if we all try to get our money out of the banks, including the Irish banks, it's not there to be gotten out. And so confidence is incredibly important. Confidence has not been lost in the Irish banks, and I don't think it will. But it could. These things are weird. They can happen for strange psychological reasons. The, se the, the other reason why the Irish banks could have a bit of difficulty, and even then I don't think it's going to be huge, is the old-fashioned one of a recession. What, are, what is a recession going to do to its loan book? Um, its loan book is essentially, as far as I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, you know more about this than I do, it, the, Irish banks these days are just glorified building societies. They're just, they've just got, they're just mortgage banks. And yeah, tiny amount of lending to the SME sector. And uh, yeah, they are basically mortgage banks. Yeah. So if the, if the mortgages go bad again, um, it, then they'd have to go really, really bad because it's not like last time where they've lent uh, on overvalued properties and all the rest of it. But if people stop servicing their mortgages because they've lost their jobs, going back to your opening remarks at the top of the show about losses in Waterford, Jim, you know, as you rightly point out, these, these are on top of job losses that we're starting to see elsewhere in the world. Um, Facebook have announced a second round of 10,000 job cuts around the world, which uh, hopefully won't affect Ireland too much, but probably will affect it a bit. Um, the, the, the action in this everything is connected to everything else world that we live in, the action of the central banks to raise interest rates is precisely to have these effects. It's to have job losses in places like Waterford and Dublin with Facebook. And Central banks, when they raise interest rates in the way that they have over the last couple of weeks, last couple of days, they want this to happen. This is what is supposed to happen as a result of the interest rate hikes. Job losses. It sounds awful. They can never admit to it. They can never be as explicit as this. But this is what they are trying to do. And each time they raise interest rates, we have to expect more uh, job losses to come. Because the aim of policy, the aim of the interest rate rises, is to weaken the job market, is to increase unemployment. And this is because they want to bear down on the inflation and they're very worried about wage inflation, of course. So I, I think that there is uh, higher unemployment than would otherwise be the case to come. I don't think in the Irish case it's going to be massive, at least I hope not. Um, but there, we, I've been fretting for months, Jim, as you know, incorrectly, as it turns out, that the central banks have been risking doing too much but all of those worries that I had through last year have come back to me. I think that they are risking to doing too much, not least because of this new banking crisis-induced credit crunch that I think is going to come and will have the same effect as raising interest rates. And so you've got a double whammy for jobs. So um, I think that Irish bank profitability could be damaged by a recession, but I don't think it, that damage in profitability 
should or will lead to a banking crisis in Ireland. But th- that depends on what is happening elsewhere. Yeah, I agree with you on the interest rate front. I mean, when you see US rates since last March, 12 months ago, from going from zero to 5%, when you see the European Central Bank rates since late July going from zero to three and a half percent, um, and in the United Kingdom from zero to four and a quarter percent. I mean, when you get that sort of dramatic monetary tightening in such a short space of time, you're it's inevitable. Some, you're you're going to break something. something. Yes, yeah. you are indeed. Yeah. And um, okay, I mean, central bankers were pretty upfront at Jackson Hole at the annual conference of central bankers in Wyoming last August, where a few came out in interviews saying explicitly that we are going to do whatever it takes to get inflation under control. If that means recession, if that means higher unemployment, so be it. But the one thing that amazingly they didn't seem to think about at all was the impact this might have on the banking system. So if you get rising interest rates coming alongside a crisis in the global banking system, well, inevitably, um, it's going to be a double whammy in terms of economic activity and unemployment. So, I mean, I agree with you that I think central bankers have done too much. Um, I was astounded that the European Central Bank hiked by a half percent last week. Um, I was surprised that the Fed went even a quarter percent this week. Um, And now they're saying all three central banks are basically saying they're going to get back into data watching. And from month to month, they will make their decision on interest rates. Um, I think there's a lot of strange thinking going on there. And ultimately, we will look back on this. I suspect as a period of significant mistakes by central banks Um, as an aside i was also astounded at what happened in credit suisse when that um you know the decision was taken last weekend to sell it to or be taken over by ubs Um, credit suisse management came out and reassured staff that bonuses would still be paid that is bloody extraordinary I know, I know. And this is how banks operate. And we're going to have to have a look at the regulatory framework for banks in the round, which will include executive pay, uh, because one of the things that also has emerged in the United States, similarly to your remarks there about Credit Suisse, Jim, is that the executive pay levels at uh, SVB in California suddenly shot up in the weeks ahead of their uh, bankruptcy. So th- there's lots of strange behavior going on, but behavior that we've come to expect from these people. And it's one of the reasons why I think we stand proud, Jim, that we have, it's been many, many years since the label banker was attached to us. But unfortunately, once it is applied to people like us, it t- does tend to stick, doesn't it? Yeah, you can never walk away from it. Yeah, Chris, I was in Edinburgh during the week and I was. Um, Picking up from a Scottish perspective, um, Boris's appearance down in um, London. Well, what were they um, making of it? Disbelief. I mean, they. He's he's he really really is setting himself up as a total clown at this stage, and um, any possibility and uh, bizarrely there was a possibility spoken about in some quarters that he would replace Rishi Sunak as prime minister that it really has been blown out of the water this week, that the legacy of Boris has been destroyed. Um, And, okay, there there was that testimony about um, the party gate, 
But at the same time, as you said, the vote was going on in relation to the Windsor framework. You know, we had 29 MPs coming out voting against it. We had the DUP doing what the DUP does. It really is a shit show, isn't it? Yeah. Um, readers, listeners of a certain age will remember uh, President Richard Nixon and his impeachment around or threatened impeachment around the time of um, something called Watergate. And it's been labelled this week, Boris Johnson's appearance before this Privileges Committee, as I said earlier, a pound shop Watergate. It really was pathetic. And there are lots of aspects to it that we could, I, I could talk about all day. The amount of legal representation he had behind him sitting in that uh, committee room he had the, the top legal brains of the UK, Lord this, Sir that, barristers, solicitors, uh, for, for what was essentially a Q&A. It wasn't a formal committee of, of investigation or anything like that. It was it really, technically, it was a chat amongst parliamentary friends. And that he turned up with all of these legal eagles was extraordinary. All paid for by the taxpayer, I have to say. And Boris Johnson is somebody in the past who was... Uh, complained bitterly about the amount of legal aid that people are given in this country when they are actually faced with, um, shall we say, similar investigations. But anyway, and it meant that the committee also lawyered up. Uh, It also got fantastic legal representation. So my learned friends have made a few quid out of this one this week. Um, But Johnson has come out of it very badly. And as I said, even the Daily Telegraph, the journal that most, I suspect, I guess, is in love with the the Johnsonian thing. The era of Boris Johnson was really driven in part by the, the two house journals of the Conservative Party or the right wing of the Conservative Party, the Daily Telegraph and the Spectator. And as I said earlier, the Telegraph has said the cults of Boris and Brexit are simultaneous implode, simultaneously imploding. And that's because that Windsor framework measure, I think it was called a statutory instrument, was passed by 515 votes to 29 with only 22 MPs, including Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, voting against. And that was a signal to Sunak that he's winning, and he's winning big time. Even hardline Brexiteers in the Conservative Party didn't vote against this, and only a rump did. That rump will always be there, in the same way that Japanese soldiers were found in the jungle fighting the Second World War 20, 30 years after it was ended. But certainly for now, at least for the foreseeable future, never say never. Wars can always start up again. But the Brexit war is over. I I think that we are now going to go into a much quieter period where the psychodrama, thank God we can all say the psychodrama of Brexit, caused by Johnson in particular, but by this nutty wing of the Conservative Party, is over. And we're going to see Brexit disappear from British headlines, actually. And Britain moving closer to Europe in all sorts of ways. Um, Essentially... Sunak is doing what Starmer said he was going to do when Starmer eventually becomes prime minister. So that's an interesting dynamic. That's the one that really is interesting to me because everybody has said, okay, who cares whether the DUP uh, voted against this? They, they, They don't matter anymore. And it's up to them whether they go into Stormont or not. That matters a lot for Ireland, matters a lot for Northern Ireland, but it doesn't really resonate very loudly in Westminster, sadly. Uh, But if Sunak does pull this trick off of narrowing the gap with Labour because of the way in which the first past the post electoral system and the way constituency boundaries are drawn and all sorts of weird and wonderful things, people are starting to wonder about this Labour lead in the polls shrinking to the point where the next election could well be a hung parliament. 
And guess who would have the swing votes in a hung parliament, Jim? DUP. The DUP. So here we remember that one from a few years ago. <laughs> I certainly do. So that, that so also it, never say never is the message of that. So but the but the UK politics I think changed quite fundamentally quite radically this week. Yeah, that would appear to be the case certainly from this perspective. Uh, Chris, I think we probably better wrap it there um, for reasons of time. Um, I do think we need to get back to having a detailed discussion about what's going on in France at the moment. Um, it, it is quite extraordinary uh, based on the reforms that Macron is pushing through, the sort of reaction of the French. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. Uh, but we leave it there. Great to talk again. Have a good weekend. Thanks a million, Jim. You have a great weekend too. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on The Other Hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Listen to the podcast free of advertisements. You can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.